Hello and welcome to Talking Scared. I'm your host, Neil McRobert, and this week, it's our birthday. Yeah, the show is exactly one year old today, and I'm cutting the cake with a chainsaw. Befitting the occasion, our guest is a genuine, bona fide, shining star in the dark literary sky. The author who, maybe more than anyone else, is defining this very moment in horror fiction. He is, of course, Stephen Graham Jones, author of last year's multi-award winning Must Read the Only Good Indians and numerous other works that push at the skin of horror and play with its bloody innards. He's back with his newest, My Heart is a Chainsaw, a novel that takes the twin concepts of the slasher and the final girl, carves them open and turns them inside out. What seems at first to be an updated spin on Scream's hyper-self-awareness becomes something wholly more emotional as things progress. As you'll hear, I can't really recall the last time my expectations were so subverted. Stephen and I talk about slashers, obviously, as well as the pros and cons of the final girl trope. I take him to task over his frankly awful treatment of fictional animals, and we even share a bonding moment over our shared terror of possession narratives, though his reading of them is far more sophisticated than mine. Stephen is exactly the guest I'd want to usher in the second year of Talking Scared, and I'm delighted to deliver this conversation to you, faithful listeners. There is a little bit of audio muffling at times in this, but nothing we can't handle. And if at times it sounds like a pirate radio station, well... That suits the outlaw of horror that I'm talking to. So, for the start of this second year, come with me to a lake in Idaho. There's blood in the water and on the breeze. Let's talk scared. Well, hi, Stephen, and a massive welcome to Talking Scared. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Well, first of all, as I always start off, how are how the hell are you and you know, where in the world are you and how are things? I'm great. I'm just back. I just barely made it to the computer. I went for a long bike ride this morning and mountain bike on some just took some like medium hard trails and I made it back about sixteen minutes ago, barely enough time to get a shower in, man. I'm in Boulder, Colorado, so we got pretty trails here. Yeah, I imagine everything I imagine everything everything is uphill in Boulder, Colorado. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, thank you for kind of putting your foot down and getting back. Um, basically, there are several reasons I'm delighted you're here. First of all, this episode is going live on the day, the actual day of the show's very first birthday. And I can't think of a more appropriate guest to commemorate the occasion for a couple of reasons. One, this show began a year ago with Paul Tremblay and John Langan. And and now with you, it feels like we're kind of adding the third point to that triangle at the heart of contemporary horror. You three seem to come as very much a, a gang. Yeah, that's an honor. I, lo- I mean, I love hanging out with Paul and John. I love reading them too. So it's an honor to be coming in at the one year anniversary. And second, I can think of few other authors who are quite so hot at the minute. Everything you write seems to set the horror community on fire. And I'm kind of thrilled to have you here at this point on your rapid upward trajectory. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you very much, man. I mean, I should say, we're recording this August 16th, and you have just been awarded not one, but two Shirley Jackson Awards. um, Best novella for Night of the Mannequins and Top of the Tree Best Novel, of course, for 
only good Indians. So, in all, it seems a pretty good time to be Stephen Graham Jones. <laughs> yeah, it was. I was quite honored to. I was honored just to be on those ballots, but it's a super honor to have got the awards. Well, only good Indians was always going to win, always. But anyway, I have my <laughs> strong suspicions that this time next year you'll have a whole other set of accolades for for your new novel, the one we're nominally here to discuss. My heart is a chainsaw. Now, as I warned you off air, I have many long, inarticulate, torturous questions to offer about this book. But as ever, I'll let the person who wrote it start us off. Can you introduce <laughs> us to My Heart is a Chainsaw? Yeah, My Heart is a Chainsaw is a slasher. It's Jade Daniels. She's a high school outcast living in a high mountain town in Idaho here in America. And it's a, it's a small, you know, rural community, Lakeside. And across the lake, there's a really gated community going up, Terra Nova. These um, business tycoon types are moving in and buying up the National Forest, which should be illegal in the first place. And halfway around the lake, there's a place called Camp Blood, an old um, shutdown camp. It was only ever open for one summer because there was a massacre there. That's what happens with summer camps, you know? And anyway, Jade, the only goggles she has are slasher goggles. She understands the world through slashers. Everything is a slasher rever reference or a trampoline to a slasher, something like that. And she, well, I guess the way to say it is she insulates herself with slashers. Um, she insulates herself from um, the censure of everyone around her, her family, um, the police, her school, the friends she doesn't have. Um, but she starts to see the opening movements of a slasher starting up in her town. And she wants to ring the alarm. At the same time, she's always wanted a slasher to come to town. And then she finds a girl, one of the new girls who just moved to town with the Terra Nova crowd, who she thinks will be the perfect final girl. So she sets about trying to sculpt her into a final girl to fight this slasher. Well, yes, it gets a lot more complex than that. You've made that sound really <laughs> straightforward. Um, so, and, it, and it's anything but straightforward. Right, listen, a broad question to start off then, and I'm sure this is a question you've been asked a million times. I try and avoid that, but this is unavoidable. What is it about you and slashers? You know, I fell in love with a slasher when I was in eighth grade. I was living down outside Austin, Texas, and got to run it with a group of people, a group of friends who... Every Friday afternoon after school, we'd go to the um, video rental place and somebody's brother or friend or something worked there. And we could sneak out with a stack of six or eight slashers, you know, clamshells, clamshell cases and everything. And if we had them back early enough on Saturday, then they didn't have to log them as gone for some reason. And so that's what we did every Friday night. We'd go to a different friend's house who he had a separate garage. He lived way out in the trees. And we would, his dad had put a little like, you know, 13 inch TV out there with an old ratty couch and a VCR. Six or eight of us would pile onto that couch and watch Freddie and Jason and Michael and Letterface and everybody and just scream and cringe and have fun. And then about two in the morning, that my that friend whose house it was, his dad would kind of get deep enough into his case of beer that he would put on a Freddie glove and come scrape those plastic claws in the outside of that metal garage door and that would just you know terrify us to no end and we'd pile out the side of that um garage the side door and just run through the darkness and for some reason if we could make it to the creek and jump in we'd be safe you know and that feeling though of 
of running in pure unbridled terror, but also smiling at the same time with like tears running back along your face. That to me is the essential characteristic of the slasher. And I think that's when I got connected to the slasher forevermore. So, yeah, I mean, my heart is a chainsaw you know, is overtly indebted to slasher tradition. You've written The Last Final Girl, equally immersed in that in that culture. It only dawned on me reading the afterword to Chainsaw that actually The Only Good Indians completely follows parts of that as well. Oh, man, for sure. In the initial, like, I say, I want to say planning stages, but I don't actually plan things. But um, a few years ago, I was happened to be in some place where an entertainment lawyer was and got to talking to him and um I wanted to write two novels and I was trying to use him to let me find a way to write those novels. And those two novels were I wanted to write a Three's Company novel and I wanted to write a Jason Voorhees novel, Friday thirteenth novel. And no matter how much I talked to that guy, he told me I cannot do that. Or I can do it but I can't sell it. You know, I can do it as practice. And I'm like, come on, I want to write a Jason Voorhees novel and I couldn't. And um and he said, "You've got to, you got to come up with a different mask, you know, a different character." And so, um, what I what I'd wanted to do was take Jason up to the reservation and see how he'd fare, you know, or or see how we would fare. And so I did that, but I just came up with my own mask, which was an Elkhead, you know. Well, it's a hell of a mask because I I've, I've been <laughs> saying this for like for a year now to to whoever, whoever will listen, like on this show and in things I've written that I think that the Elkheaded woman is the only real addition to that kind of slasher horror pantheon that we've had probably since, like, Ghostface. You know what I mean? Oh, and, wow, thank you. And if there's if there's going to be a film of this, she will enter into the... Uh-huh. the she will enter into the, the firmament of, of, of horror <laughs> villains. She's, she's terrifying. Um, before we go any further, just a, a fun, easy question. What's your favourite slasher movie? Scream, easy, man. I love Scream forevermore. Um, you know, back in 96, I was in grad school in Florida. And the deal I made myself to go to grad school was I'm there to write. I'm not there to hang out or, you know, do all that stuff. And so every time people ask, do you want to go do this or that? I'd say, no, I got to write. And so, um, you know, it's Christmas break, winter break. And I guess, I guess that's when it was. Yeah, winter break. And a knocking comes on my door and... It's a friend of mine from the program, from the writing program, Ryan Van Cleve. And he says, hey, man, I'm going to take you to a movie. I said, no, nah, I got to write. You know, that was my always answer. And he said, no, I'm taking you to a movie. And I said, maybe you didn't hear me. I'm, I'm working on a story. That's more important than any, anything else going on outside this apartment. And he argued and argued with me. And I, it was finally easier just to go to the stupid movie with him <laughs> than to argue with him. And so he took me and it was scream. And watching that movie, I just felt my brain changing like, all the homework I've been doing my whole life was suddenly worth it because I was getting every joke and I could feel what was coming, but I couldn't quite guess it. And it was so, so pleasurable, so challenging, so fun, so scary. And so, you know, I think, I think Ryan Van Cleef for bringing me that movie. And I went back my own and saw it the next six nights in a row, you know, and I've never stopped watching it since or reading it. See that I find that, that is the obvious answer, considering how kind of meta and, and, and kind of self-reflexive your own fiction is. But I'm also really surprised because I, I think over the years, I, I've forgotten to think of Scream as a horror movie. And I think of it more as an exercise 
in in introspection and comedy. Do you know what I mean? It, I haven't <laughs> yeah, seen it that long. Yeah. I've forgotten that it's actually a horror movie. Yeah, for sure. I mean, Scream is one of those really rare cases that's um, able to both um, feel like a parody while at the same time engaging the core dynamic. You know, it's it's easy to do one or the other. It's really difficult to ever do both, and it that it does it really really well. I think. Well, actually, it's a perfect answer to team me up for the next question because you know formula and trope and cliche and awareness and all that is at the absolute heart of a lot of your work, mm-hmm. but particularly Chainsaw, um, mm-hmm. because Jade, the our heroine, our protagonist, is you know she's a walking encyclopedia of slasher lore. I mean, she mentions films that I've never heard of, and I've seen a lot of horror films, you know. <laughs> And she's aware of all these tropes, just like the guy, just like Seth Green in Scream is aware of yeah. all these tropes. So is Jade. But whereas Scream perpetuates those tropes, you and Jade kind of explode them and reinvigorate them with, with new meaning, right? Yeah. Now, I told you these questions would get like long-winded. I, I've just written a draft, I finished it last night, of an article for Slate magazine talking about your novel, mm-hmm and about Grady Hendrix's final girl support group and how they do mm-hmm. something new with slashers and that meta mm-hmm. impulse. And I'm intrigued to see how close I got to the truth as you see it. What do you think your book does that moves the conversation along? How is it different to what Wes Craven did 25 years ago with Scream? You know, um, what I was trying to do with Chainsaw is um, kind of make the reader feel like they're educated on the slasher or in the slasher, how it works. And then to show them that those expectations are meaningless, you know, that there's always something new around the corner. Um, that's, that's what I was, that's what I was going for. That's kind of what you have to do actually, or else you're just walking on the same ground everyone else has walked on. And that to me is no fun. I don't think you should write novels that have either been written or that, you know, you can write. I like to write novels that, um, to me are kind of broken at the level of conception so that it's a big challenge for me to pull it off if that makes sense and Mm -hmm. to me chainsaw my heart is a chainsaw was um a tall tall order um i didn't really think i could pull it off and it took me a long time to pull it off and i mean the readers will tell me whether i pulled it off or not who knows if i did you know what what was um, it you thought you couldn't pull off um to surprise them basically you know Right, well, you certainly surprised me massively because I'll be very honest, for the first sort of like third of the book, I was kind of like, okay, I'm not, I hope this doesn't offend you, it's an honest appraisal, I was like, okay, I'm I'm not convinced, this feels like an exercise in intellect and knowledge as opposed to heart, and then it becomes something entirely different to that. It felt like having the rug pulled from under my feet a little bit. And we can't say too much, <laughs> yeah. you know. Yeah. But yeah. the argument I made is that you and Grady Hendrix, but but you much more so in this book, are you're using kind of this meta stuff and this self-awareness and, and all of this this experimental postmodern commentary mm-hmm. not to poke fun at the slasher and at, and at the culture but to show you all of these rules and tropes and cliches add up to something meaningful. And yeah. it, it felt like at the end of the day, it was sincere in a way that Scream isn't. I'm trying to. I mean, that to me, when I'm looking at any work of art, 
like or when I'm looking at a novel or just any piece of fiction, that's what I'm looking for very first is sincerity, you know? And, um, and that's why I like my favorite writer is probably always going to be Philip K. Dick, you know, because, um, his stuff, you could translate it into any language and it doesn't lose anything because he wasn't about, um, the rhythm of the prose or any of that stuff. Um, but it always felt like he was trying to save his own life in this story, in this novel, in this whatever it is. And um, he would always write himself into these like metaphysical, ontological corners and then have to find a way out. And I so love to watch him do that. And it feels like such a sincere effort. And um, so with my own stuff, that, that's kind of the standard I set for myself. If, if it's coming off as just like a intellectual exercise, then it's a failure. It has to, it has to be sincere. It has to, it has to matter in the end. Mm -hmm. Well, I think this book will matter to a lot of people because of the revelations late in the day. I think a lot of people will read this book and, and feel a great deal. I, I can see a lot of people who have had similar experiences to Jade. Mm -hmm. Again, we won't trespass into that, but I can, I can imagine people sitting bolt right in the seat going like oh, oh my god do you know what i mean people who've who've mm -hmm. walked similar road so and i think it will take them doubly by surprise because of how much you've made it feel like a parody for, for a lot of the book yeah well thank you it's all about like you I mean, it's like a writing fiction is largely you're kind of a magician um you're you're waving your left hand so people look at it while you do something with your right hand you know and um that, that's what I'm that's what I'm probably always trying to do I guess but it's such a hard role to hold because you as you say you're going for sincerity that's something that I thought yeah. as well but you're doing it through this this mode of storytelling which <laughs> you know for, for like 30 years now has been the opposite of sincerity it's been like oh <laughs> pop cultural references brand names let's let's deconstruct the culture like why have you picked those two things are so difficult to, to meld and marry. No, you're you're totally right. Um, I think though that with like you um use the typical building blocks to try to reach the reader's heart, then um they're gonna expect it in a way, you know. And I think if you can use something they consider trash and then build something they can't look away from, it to me has more impact. Okay, so that brings us to another question I wanted to ask you, which is, you know, you're a writer who is really elevating the horror genre into something intelligent and experimental and dare I say it literary, although I've made my doubts about that particular term quite clear <laughs> on this show over many mm -hmm. episodes. Um, but you know what I mean by that? And yeah. it, it really strikes me as interesting that you're writing about slashers because in most people's hands, they're seen as often the most formulaic and, and kind of lightweight of horror narratives. Like you were saying, that that grin, mm -hmm. you know, slashers are kind of like comfort viewing for horror fans. Yeah. So it, I, yeah. I, it strikes me as, as interesting that you're choosing that mold to try and say something profound. You know, um, back in the 90s, I was at some event where a poet was speaking and he was talking about what he called baffles and um, a baffle, the way he was using it is um, a villanelle or a sestina or a sonnet. It's a really rigid form that you try to shove your thoughts and feelings into. And he said that um, you spend so much of your brain of your thinking trying to get this rhyme to work or that meter to click or whatever it is 
that something real can sneak through, you know? And I'm, mm. to me, to me, that's how um, genre conventions are. It doesn't have to be a slasher. It can be the detective novel. It can be science fiction. It can be whatever. Um, slasher is just where my heart is or horror is where my heart is, I guess, and slashers particularly. But um, the strictures of having to ring, to ring certain bells as you go around the merry-go-round to me um are actually liberating you know um or maybe you know a different way to say it is say i'm a dancer if you if we walk into a big air, air you know airplane hangar it's a huge monstrous space and it's empty and you say show me what you can do show me how you can dance you've got all this room you got three acres of concrete um i'm probably gonna do something ridiculous and stupid and gaudy but if you tape off a little four by four foot square with masking tape and you say, do your, do your dance right there, then I think I can dance better. I think most people can dance better in a really confined space. And that's what genre is for me. That's what the, the steps and conventions of the slasher are for me. They're, they are that four by four masking taped area where I have to um, bang against the walls and figure out new ways to do this and that. And it's, um, it's so challenging and so liberating finally. That is, that's a great, a great metaphor rather. Yeah. That makes perfect sense. Um, so, well, let's talk then about some of the ways that you actually do subvert or whatever, you know, these, these tropes and conventions. So one of the, obviously the, the more, the more obvious and major things is that in my heart is a chainsaw your emphasis is entirely on the notion of the final girl as opposed mm -hmm. to the killer. Yeah. That's, I think, more revolu revolutionary Sorry, than a lot of people would necessarily realise at first because, you know, after years of mythologising many masks, we're finally giving, it seems, due respect to the other side of that central pairing. What prompted you to tackle the slasher from that perspective? You know, I mean, part of it's just exactly what you're saying. When you go to the Halloween store, there's row after row of Michael Myers mask, but there's no Laurie Strode mask, you know? And um, I think we should. I think the final girls are the heroes of these stories. And um, and But I did want to interrogate the kind of trope of the final girl. And I think that the final girl is wonderful. She's our model for how to stand up to bullies, basically. But um, over the years, and especially what the eighties did to the slasher um, was they kind of moralized it, you know, and mm -hmm. they, and the, the, the process of that moralized, I mean, the result of that moralized, that moralizing, like, I don't know, pro whatever it was, turned the final girl into this unattainable ideal. You know, she's super smart, super good. She's practically like an angel or, or something. And, um, and I think when you're model, for how to resist bullies in your life becomes an unattainable, unattainable ideal. It's no longer a useful model. And so what I wanted to do was bring the final girl back and make her something that um, a, a girl in fifth grade can see and want to be like, you know, and say, I, I, that can be me. You know, I can stand up to these people on the playground or whatever. And it's not impossible that I could do that. That's what I want. I want it. I want it to be, I want, I want, it to be possible for people to push back against whatever is a bully in their life. Yeah. And brilliantly, you give no real focus to the bully either, because that's the weird imbalance of these narratives that we all mythologize 
the man with the knife you know that's the interesting character with the arcane backstory and the the you know revenge on his mind whether whether it's justified or not yeah your novel like the narrative structure of it basically just makes whoever the killer is kind of a sort of side issue it doesn't really matter who the killer is in this novel does it uh-huh. yeah no no it doesn't it's um it is all about the final girl for sure but i i'd argue um that, that one of the most problematic aspects of the slasher is the final girl herself because if you said you know she's become unattainable and she's mm-hmm. always kind of middle class and beautiful and pure and almost always white you know we all know the template you know and yeah yeah your protagonist jade never even considers that she could be the heroine because yeah. she doesn't fit that mold i mean she she's looking for another final girl there's someone else as you said that she puts her kind mm-hmm. of hopes into and and she says about herself um and i'm paraphrasing here she says final girls don't wear combat boots to school they don't wear metal up your ass t-shirts and then quite poignantly final final girls wrists aren't open to the world yeah. so there's all these things she's psychologically kind of damaged she's she doesn't fit the the, the the beautiful mold but then of course jade is also native american mm-hmm. are you writing a corrective text here Stephen? I hope I am, you know, I mean, I guess it remains to be seen whether it does any good, you know, but that, that's, that's what I'm reaching for. Yeah. I want to, I want to push the idea that um, a final girl is who you are on the inside, not what you are on the outside. Yeah. You, you make some really sort of bitterly ironic points about her and her Native American heritage. Like there's, there's one point where she is, I'm going, to, I'm going to put this in a way that isn't going to be in the way. She is buried in a mound of flesh. And, and she talks <laughs> yeah. about being just another Indian buried underneath yeah. the bodies, you know, of Indians and stuff like that. Yeah. It, it's, it's a trite question because I know you get it all the time and you've written some great things about, you know, being ghettoized in the community. But how how important was it for you to put a indigenous face on your final girl? Oh, it was... Um... It meant everything. Um, uh, we have we've never had a native final girl, you know. Um, and who knows if we if we do yet? Of course, you know. Um, but to, maybe I can answer it best by dialing back to the Olympic Indians. Actually, um, mm-hmm. my my favorite line in the Olympic Indians is um, when you come for a reservation girl, bring band aids. You know, <laughs> um, I, um, that's probably what I want to push in a lot of my books. Actually, you know, um. You know, after after I turned this novel into my editor, Joe Monty, he wrote back and he said, hey, this is a novel about gentrification. And I was like, what? And I'm, I, I mean, it, it, it is. He's right. You know, he's always right about this kind of stuff. I don't, I don't think about it when I'm writing it. But um, to me, it was about gentrification on a much larger scale, like the colonial push into America, you know. Um, so these Terra Novans coming across the lake to snatch up this, you know, supposedly pristine forest to build their mcmansions on um was you know settlers coming to plymouth rock and doing the same thing of course um and so i kind of have that operating at the large scope in this novel and then yes it is kind of expressed at the individual level through some of jade's observations about her situations as you were saying well i mean i i loved the only good indians um as you say that that is probably more overt about bringing a Native American voice into mm-hmm. horror than this mm-hmm. is. I, I love both books because 
when we talk about horror as an art form, I think it immediately defaults to this essentially white Western canon, you know, because even something yeah. like the J horror bubble of the nineties was defined by its otherness, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I've mm-hmm. long been screaming that we need new stuff and new myths and new yeah. monsters. And, and, and that's why I loved the Indians because it, it, it was this emphatically American story but with this shifted perspective that I haven't seen before. And I, I, I assume few people have seen before. And as, as I said, you know, in the elk headed woman, you've got this monster that can slide right into the pantheon with Dracula and Freddy Krueger and the rest. And again, in Chainsaw, you take it on this really established canonical part of American culture, the slasher, but giving it to us from a complete outsider's perspective, both an outsider in her town, an outsider to that tradition, you know, it is being this kind of outsider, this POV essential to you, Stephen? Oh, yeah, that's a good question. Um, I bet. Let me think. I'm like, I'm, I'm standing here looking at all my books. Um, I think my characters are nearly always outsiders, it looks like. Yeah, <laughs> I think they always are. Um, and I think it's that, that's the way I grew up. We moved every few months, you know, and I'd always be the new kid at school. And I'm. Um, I was growing up in Texas mostly, and um, and and so I was always the only Indian in school. Um, so I think I'm probably just—I mean, I guess the grand way to say it is, yeah, I'm into that whole outsider thing. But the truth of it's probably just that I'm lazy and I'm writing what I know, you know, and that—that's the main thing I know is being the new kid at school. Yeah, I spoke to Joe Lansdale a while back, who was was singing your praises. And I asked him a similar question about does he, as he always felt like an outsider, you know, both in terms of the fiction he writes, it doesn't quite fit any mold. Mm-hmm. Um, his kind of public persona is a little bit, you know, off kilter away from the polished kind of bestseller mm-hmm. author you think of. Um, and he said that, yeah, you know, it, it, that that was his kind of his, his journey, but but not always through mm-hmm. choice, more through necessity. And I, I get the yeah. same vibe for you. I, I, I get this feeling that you are somebody sitting on the, on the periphery of the culture and making wry observations about it from a perspective that someone in the middle of it may not necessarily have? Possibly, but um, the trick is, it's, uh, I look at it in terms of like a party you go to, you know, and any party I go to, I always end up standing in the corner, you know, like pretending like I'm eating this really good cracker or whatever it is, you know, um, but um. I want to be in the center of the party talking to people, but I never know how, you know? And I think that that's just how it is for me. And maybe that's how it is for writers. Maybe writers are never at the party. Maybe writers are always, always looking and thinking, what if, you know, um, I don't mean to at all say that I'm special in that regard or anything. Um, I really always, when I used to watch Star Trek Voyager, I would always identify with seven of nine, the, you know, the Borg who had been reclaimed to be a, you know, a debt crew. And um, and she would go to these functions, these social functions on the ten forward or whatever the party place was, and she would always be over to the side asking, "What's going on? Why are y'all doing this? It doesn't make sense to me." And that's how I always feel, you know. Um, I always I felt I felt very much like a reclaimed Borg my whole life. I just never knew it till I saw Voyager. <laughs> okay, <laughs> um, well, you are now definitely the center of the party. So what what I was sort of heading towards that question is to ask, you know, as somebody who writes these outsider POVs who feels like a little bit of a 
a renegade. I almost think of it as in terms of you and Joe Lansdale, kind of, you know, you know what, what Willie Nelson is to country music, kind of outlaw country. That's how your fiction feels, like outlaw horror, you know? Um, yeah. Wow, that's, that's cool. Is there any part of you that, as much as I'm sure you're delighted with the success, that is kind of like, oh, shit, now I'm like, now I'm at the party. Now I'm like, I'm no longer able to sit <laughs> over here and do my thing. You know, I feel, I feel really fortunate that um, my first, like, I don't know, 20 or 25 books, they weren't like publishing obscurity, but they were not, they didn't like light the world up, you know? Um, and, but it, I think it's wonderful that they didn't because I got to go all over the bookshelf and do this and that with different presses, different editors. And I'm, um, I got to try on so many different hats and ways of doing things and all these weird little novels that um that publishers knew they weren't gonna be commercial successes, but they were kind of neat and quirky, so they they, they do them anyways, just to have done them. And um like I've got a bunny headed zombie novel, I've got a novel about time traveling invisible caterpillars, I've <laughs> got all kinds of ridiculous stuff everywhere and I feel so fortunate to have got to do that before um, people started paying attention to what I was doing, you know? Um, but at the same time, I'm not at all sad that people are paying attention to what I'm doing now because um, um, I understand what people say when they say you write a book to have written the book, you know, it's not about, you don't write it for, you know, to make money. You don't write it for this, these readers or whatever. At the same time, I don't think a novel's complete until somebody reads it. It's not complete if I write it and put it in a trunk or a drawer. You know, it's only complete when the thoughts and feelings that I encoded into this narrative are decoded by a reader and they feel some version of those same thoughts and feelings. That's when it's complete. And um, so, like Good Indians or Chainsaw going everywhere and getting read by many people, that just makes them more and more complete to me, and it's thrilling. Well, it feels like your real profile um began with mongrels um which i'm yet to read embarrassingly i really really want to read it because so many people scream about that book to me but it's just finding (laughs) time Uh, and also i think the werewolf is a really undernourished monster in uh, in contemporary (laughs) horror um so it feels like it started with mongrels and then obviously you just smash through every kind of doorway with the only good indians what do you think it was about that book that spoke to people? Because it's quite an odd book. You know, it is, it's not a normal three-act, simple, structured novel. What, what do you think it was that kind of grabbed people by the throat? It, probably the weird way I wrote it is a big key to it reaching so many people. Um, and the way I wrote it was I had done a novella for Ellen Datlow, Mapping the Interior, and it it got you know made the rounds and won some awards and junk and she said hey why don't you write me another one and I said you know mapping interior took me four days and I told her sure I got four days you know so um so I sat down and wrote, tried to write another novella and it turned into this novel and I was like well that's that sucked and so I put the novel aside and I and I sat down to write that novella for Ellen Datlow and I wrote another novel and I, and I and I thought, what's going on? Do I not know how to write a novella anymore? Do I not watch my word count? You know, what's happening? And um, so I sat down and wrote um, the Lewis portion of The Only Good Indians, The House That Ran Red. At the time, that book was called Where the Old Ones Go, I think. And um, 
And I got to the end, and it was about, you know, 100, 120 pages. And um, I wrote the last line. I thought, I finally did. I wrote a novella for Ellen Datlow that I told her I'd write. But then another line occurred to me that it could replace that first ending line I had written, and, I, and it opened it up into a whole novel. And so I called up my agent, or I texted her or something, and I said, hey, I just got to the end of a novella. Um, I can either turn it into a novel, or I can run it as a novella. What do you want me to do? And she wrote right back, and she said, novels are easier to sell. Why don't you make it into a novel? So I did. I made it into a novel. And the result of that is that um, you reach kind of the, I don't know, 40% mark or so through that novel, the lowest portion, and it kind of changes tone and escalates in a way that you weren't expecting. And the only reason it does that is because I thought I was writing the novella. It wasn't because I had some big strategy or plan or anything. And um, I suspect that that's um, a big part of why the Only Good Indians reaches people. Um, because it, it, it has that little that hitch or that big stair step in the middle, which, um, you know, I love it when a book does that. Like, um, what's that book by Flynn? Um, it was turned into a movie. Is it the, it's, it's where the woman, it turned into, oh, what's, what's it? Jill, do you know that? It was her break, breakthrough book. It's not Sharper Objects. Um, by who? Julia Flynn. Oh, Gone Girl. Yeah. Yeah, Gone Girl. That's it. I kept on saying the good girl. Yeah, Gone Girl. It has that escalation, you know, towards the middle of it. And, you know, so does Ian McEwan's Atonement. Probably about 35 or 40% of it, it has a narrative escalation. And there's two or three of Philip K. Dick's books that do it. Vallis does it. Radio Free Albemuth does it. Um, I love it when a book, like, gets those rocket thrusters right towards the middle of the book. And and you realize that you have no idea the narrative space you're about to be blasted into. And because of the ridiculous way that I wrote the Ungan Indians, it ended up kind of accidentally getting those rocket boosters in the middle. And I, I suspect that if anything, you know, made it jump into everybody's heads and hearts, that might be it. And did you learn anything from that book then that you put into Chainsaw? Because I can see certain parallels. Oh, I definitely did. What I learned from Good Indians that I used for Chainsaw was um, in Good Indians, it starts now with that prologue with um, Ricky Boshribs dying at that um, roadhouse parking lot, in that bar parking lot. And um, in the first draft and for most of the drafts of that book, that came about halfway through Sweat Lodge Massacre, which is the second part of The Only Good Indian. So it came at about 50% through the book. And when I was revising it towards the end of its revision process, I realized that, wait, I can move this chapter one chapter ahead or one chapter behind and nothing changes. And when you suddenly have a free-floating chapter in a novel, then things are broken because things have to go in sequence and progression in the novel. That's what linear narrative is. And, um, and, and I was like, what is going on here? And so what I did was I fell back to my slasher scaffolding and you know, I just looked at Friday Thirteenth, at, at the Halloweens, at the Freddies, and um, and they always start with um a blood sacrifice, with some random person dying in some way where you don't quite see the killer, and it just establishes the mortal stakes and gives us a sense of menace in the in the, in the story. And I realized that I could just kind of tilt the novel on its side, and that Ricky chapter would slide all the way up to become a zero chapter, a prologue. And um, I could satisfy the slasher, the slasher conventions better. And I had intended to write a slasher anyway, so it made sense to do that. 
And so in my heart is a chainsaw. Um, the part that's now the opening was kind of the same as the Ricky part in The Lincoln Indians. It initially came some ways into the novel. And over its long revision process, I realized that that's actually the splashy opening of the novel is these two kids dying out on the lake. And so that's what I learned from Lincoln Indians that I applied to Chainsaw was that I have to follow the slasher rules, basically. Okay. Yeah. Because the, the opening of this reminds me very much of Jaws. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that feel. Sure, yeah. Uh, yeah. Right. So, right. So everything you just said about like that, you know, you said rocket boost, as you said, this like propulsive thing at the halfway point, right? That has yeah. that has led me to what is basically prepare yourself for some really sycophantic praise, <laughs> right? Because I've said this in many places ever since I read the book, right? These are not easy books to read, but I mean, My Heart is a Chainsaw and um, All Good Indians, they're not easy books to read in so far as they are not paint by numbers, lead you by the hand um stories you know they're, they're challenging and they move in strange ways and and as i said when i was reading this for a while i felt like i was missing a key or i was being kept at bay by the story but then then with both of them the final third of the novel becomes this headlong kind of relentless rush yeah so the sweat box mm -hmm. scene in indians giving way to denora's confrontation with the elk-headed woman mm -hmm. i didn't think you could top that until i got to the last hundred pages of chainsaw because it's without a doubt the most well-sustained piece of high-tension storytelling I've ever read. And I, I just I kept waiting to breathe, and you kept not giving me a chance to breathe. Now, is that intentional? And how do you construct and deliver something like that at, at that pitch? How do you, like, shut your computer and come back the next day and pick up? Pr like, practically, how do you do it? <laughs> well, thank thank you first. Thank you very much. Um, but the trick with that is what people always expect in a novel is that um, it's going to go in peaks and valleys, you know, that um, after a peak, you get to catch your breath in the valley, then you climb again and you catch your breath again. And so what I had fun with at the end of My Heart is a Chainsaw is instead of giving the reader valleys, I was like, we're climbing again, we're climbing again, you know, and, and the air gets thinner and thinner and you get dizzier and dizzier, but um, you can't stop going either. That's that's what I wanted as for how to do it craft-wise or discipline-wise or any of that. Um, a lot of caffeine, I guess. That's my only answer. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that, that that is a funny answer but that's what it feels like it feels like someone who is on a lot of amphetamines just kind of like hammering away so i i pictured you like like jack kerouac just kind of feeding a roll of paper in and pounding keys because i know that you yeah, pound yeah. keys with no thought do, for yeah. chapter breaks or respite but yeah i mean you still not answer my question I, i'm not i'm not sure you possibly can but i've 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 never read anything that sustains this that fever pitch of emotion and action and, and tension for so long. Well, thank you. You know, um, I felt obligated to do that, actually, because um, the reader has come with me through the, the front of Chainsaw, which is getting to Jade and Proofrock and just to this whole this whole area and story space that she's in. Um, and... The bodies are piling up slowly, you know, and so I felt that people who come to a book 
that has Chainsaw in the title are going to expect it to get over the top in ways that they couldn't have anticipated. And so I had to rise to meet that challenge. I had to pay that off. I had to pay off their, um, their having gone through the setup with me, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, makes sense. And and I would say to my listeners, and as I say, I hope this doesn't come across as in any way criticism, but I would say to listeners reading this who go into it expecting a streamlined slasher, to, I would say stick with it because, you know, people may not, a lazy reader may not stick with this book and that you, you definitely should because fuck me, does it go places. Um, <laughs> Thank you. And, I mean... The flip side of that, what we just said is that, you know, when I said that these are not easy books, your fiction is is especially unusual in, in, in several ways. So there's the experimental self-aware stuff we've talked about. There's mm-hmm. there's what seems to me a frank disregard for the normal structure of a 400 page mm-hmm. novel. And then there's the narration itself, because it's you write with slang and kind of shortcuts and these sliding subjectivities and, you know, second person yeah. and stuff like that. And then there's a real sense of play with the firm rules of grammar. I mean, it's yeah. a lot of stuff that is different to a, a narrative voice that most people would expect. Is that something you work at or is that your natural kind of writing voice? I think that's just kind of the shore I've washed up on after all the... Um the weird stuff I've done over the last 25, 30 years, you know, um, I remember in grad school for a while, um, I read a story that, um, had no punctuation in it. And I was really enamored of that. Mm. And so for the next year in all my fiction classes, I didn't use punctuation and, um, my professors weren't very fond of it at all, you know, but, um, I was like, this is the way it is. Y'all just better deal with it, you know? And, um, cause I was like 22 years old, 23 years old, whatever. And, um, and I've had lots of like, I don't know, phases, stages, whatever, like, like that in, in my, my writing, like life where I found a new thing and I go all in on it. And, and after doing that for like nearly three decades, I guess, it feels like I've, I'm a snowball with all these little pieces left over from little fascinations I've had, if that makes sense. And, and so it just, I don't intentionally set out to do weird stuff. I do weird stuff just because that's what I'm made of now. Mm. I don't think it's weird. I think it's distinctive. I think it, and, and it comes back again and again to this sense of experimental sincerity. If we live in a post postmodern world, I think maybe you are its, its voice. Um, and yeah, I, I think maybe like our cultural mold, I, I think maybe we've gone through a process where like, you know, the the 90s got so focused on irony and then the noughties got obsessed with nostalgia. And it, uh-huh. it feels now like having an earnest tone of voice is making a comeback. But And, and your stories are incredibly earnest, but but they're written in the kind of patois of postmodernism. Um, so it's a kind of disorienting thing to read sometimes. <laughs> well, thank you. That's, that's, that's cool to hear. Um, you know, one of, one of like the, the many phases I was talking about that I, I went through was an extreme fascination with, um, John Barth and, you know, William okay. Gaddis and, yeah. and, and the whole crowd, the whole crowd, you know, and I just, I thought that was my reason for living was reading their books, you know? Um, and so that stuff is definitely very deeply in my DNA. 
Yeah, I spent many, many years at university reading that stuff because I, I did all my <laughs> research into like postmodern metafiction and stuff like that. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Is William Gaddis the one where you get the book and it's just a lot of loose-leaved sheets? <laughs> I the... think Chris Ware, Chris Ware did that recently. I don't know if William Gaddis did that. I know Chris Ware did it recently. Like, yeah. what's it called? Story? Story? Like, you get a big – it's like a plan. It's like you get a big Monopoly box, you know, and yeah. all kinds of junk in it. But, um, right. Well, you, you've kind of opened a kind of one that I've got to ask you because you've you, you've trespassed in that direction. But are you a House of Leaves fan? Um, yeah, that's a complicated question. <laughs> Everyone has a strange relationship with that book. No one ever just says yes or no. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, I so I so despise like Johnny Truant. He bugs me to no end. But um, I love the Navidson record, and um, and I think it's a pretty competent haunted house story too you know and it's a fun like haunted narrative space story as well um i get really tired of all the little hold the book to a mirror to read this little block of text all those kind of little games you know Mm -hmm. um i think they're kind of i think they're kind of self-indulgent but um i really am fond of the um go into the footnotes for their understory and then the footnotes have footnotes and then that goes that sprawls for pages i love that kind of um getting lost in the text it's yeah. it's like you know talking talking john barth it's lost in the funhouse basically mm-hmm. you know um and yeah yeah i like it more than i dislike it for sure um however i should mention that um in 1999 i wrote a novel demon theory and um, i finished it i finished it in november of 99 and then january 1st the first sample i saw like a 60 page sample of house of leaves came out in anticipation of its big publication and it broke my heart because my novel demon theory was a really complicated novel with all these footnotes about horror trivia and um and so by the time my agent sent my novel out they're all like hey it's another another person trying to cash in on house of leaves success you know and so i had to dial it back a lot that book didn't come out until 2006 i guess and to tell you the truth of all my books um it's probably the most immediate ancestor to my heart is a chainsaw well yeah i mean again it's it is a um i've read demon theory but but not for yeah. years so i'm not going to talk about yeah. politics i'll make myself a fool because i read it for part of that phd about metafiction and all that oh. kind of stuff but then i i yeah. drew a very very um hard line on the year 2000 because i thought i can't i can't do anymore yeah. it's just um yeah. but surely that book is gonna get a re-release surely off the back yeah. of all your success yeah yeah it is yeah because I mean that that book deserves to be seen because yeah that because that is the that is the bible of like horror novels about <laughs> about horror you know uh, I mean House of Leaves is about about many things but Demon Theory is much more about the uh, its own tradition <laughs> yeah thank you to finish up then you've led us to a quite a good place there um, oh no 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 not before I finish up I've got one more question to ask yeah. um, bone to pick with you because mm-hmm. I. As, as my long-term listeners will know, I've bought a new dog, right? Well, it's the same new. I got him a year ago. And I basically, this, this dog has changed my life. I live my life for this dog. Mm-hmm. And the thing I've become massively, massively troubled by <laughs> is animal cruelty in fiction. Yeah. Like, I have to, like, put books down and take a walk. And, like, I, honestly, you can cut people open. I don't care. You make, you make <laughs> like, a dog sad. And I'm incensed, right? And everyone I speak to about this always says to me, Stephen Graham Jones and the things he does to animals and all that. Why, Stephen? Why do you insist on on being mean 
it's a furry thing. <laughs> I think that's just the world I grew up in. I grew up farming, and um, on the on the farm and ranching as well. We ranched. I mean, we ran cattle and we grew cotton. Um, two different sides of my family, and um, I mean, animals, whether you want them to or not, it seems like something terrible is always happening to an animal. You know, um. You start your car in the morning and you kill two cats that are sleeping on the engine, that kind of stuff, you know? Um, yeah. Um, I remember one, one time, you know, people always dump their, they, they bring their fancy dogs out to the country to, so they can go live with a farmer and we're that farmer, you know, they leave them in the ditch and the dogs wander up to our house and we feed them and you know, they'll be big old dogs. Um, usually you have a pack of four or five of them running around the place and um, my uncle's or one of one of my uncles who who I was always I like practically lived with him for a long time. Um, a pit bull wandered up one day, and we're like, "Wow, that's different," you know, because you don't see a lot of pit bulls out in the country, little short legged dogs. And um, within about four days, that dog, that pit bull, had killed all the other dogs on the property. <laughs> it was the boss dog, and um, and it was kind of scary because you'd be working on a tractor. And that pit bull was super agile and it would just run right up on top of that tractor and turn sideways and look at you right in the eye, you know, and you try not to make eye contact because it was probably going to bite your face off, which I mean, like I was saying, I have a half pit bull. I don't have anything against pit bulls, but they are capable dogs, you know? Um, So I don't, I mean, I don't think I have anything against animals. I just kind of grew up in a place where, terrible things are always happening to animals you know and i won't i've got so many terrible animal stories that i won't lay on you or on the listeners that would be cruel but um growing up working cattle and growing up farming it's just what you see every day isn't it weird that we're having a conversation about films and books about men running around killing people and stabbing people and we're all fine with it but i'm sitting here wincing <laughs> Uh, what you may say next about dogs on your ranch. Yeah. I, I mean, basically the, the scene in only good Indians where you find out what they've done to incur the wrath of, of this spirit, yeah. like yeah. just, just so awful. And, and you, you did redeem yourself in my eyes in chainsaw because there is an, an absolutely beautiful kind of epilogue involving a bear, which means, means many things symbolically in this story. Um, but it's it, it's just a wonderful, lovely epilogue where for once you don't do an awful thing to an animal. Well, thank you. Thank you very much for, for, for reading that and saying it. Um, you know, I think, you know, I had a um, thing happen with a bear once. I was hunting elk when I was about, I was probably 12 years old, I guess, up on the reservation. And my uncle and I, my great uncle, Jerry, we saw... Like we saw a cow moose on a hill kind of far away and you know you could tell it was sleeping had that big hump on its back and um, didn't have horns so we figured it's a cow moose and we stalked it for 45 minutes and i'm carrying the rifle because a young guy always carries a gun yeah and we finally get really close to it and and then it then she stands up and it's a big old grizzly bear and then her two cubs pop their heads up out of the grass and we're like oh man this is high stakes you know um just seeing a bear is scary enough seeing a bear when her cubs are in the area that's really pretty bad mm-hmm. news and and so i'm like i've got her in my crosshairs and I'm, re- I'm about to pull the trigger and my uncle puts his hand in front of the scope and pushes the gun down he says we're not shooting this bear and um and i always remember that that um 
she could have, I mean, she was close enough. We couldn't have run, you know, if she wanted to get us, she could have got us. But my uncle, my great uncle Jerry told me that it's more important that she live than that we're totally safe, you know? Um, and also my family, we don't, we don't shoot bears, you know, that's kind of a thing we don't do. Um, cause who's going to eat a bear? You know, you shouldn't shoot things you're not going to eat. I don't think. I think I like your uncle. He sounds my kind of guy. I, um, <laughs> I mean, my bear story, ridiculously, uh, here, me in the, the north of England, I have a bear story. When, when me and my wife went to Canada, I was terrified of seeing a bear because, as I always say to people, the apex predator where I live is the badger, right? I'm not yeah. prepared to meet these things in the wild. I, I have no life experience or understanding about how to deal with that situation. And me and my wife were in, in Canada in a, in a town called Golden, and we'd been out in, like, Glacier Park. We'd been out in, like, you know... Yeah. Uh, the Kanaskis, we've been in all these places, not seen a single bear. We went for a walk about a quarter mile outside downtown through these, wood, through these woods, walked up this little incline over a deadfall and saw a bear and her two cubs. It was a, it was a black bear, not a grizzly. Uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. And I, I haven't, we, we backed away. And my fear just dissipated in the moment. I was like, it's okay. She doesn't care about me. And my wife then became terrified. I was like, what are the chances? I, I, I basically saw the only bear I've ever seen in the wild, the equivalent of like a quarter mile from my hotel. That's cool. Hey, and if you were at Glacier, then you were in, in Blackfeet country, man. That's really? Nice. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, all, most of Montana used to be Blackfeet country in the first place. But um, the Blackfeet Reservation is like if you take Glacier and fold it to the east, that's the Blackfeet Reservation. And a large part of I mean, until 1895, a big chunk of glacier was the Blackfeet Reservation too. Until the government said, "Hey, that's too pretty for y'all to have." You know. Well, I mean, it is a beautiful part of the world, um, and, and 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 of course, we stole it. Of course, we did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, that's a whole another conversation we can have at some future date when you write some great, you know, revenge narrative. Um, yeah. To, fi- yeah. to finish up today. Simple thing, we always finish the same way. Can you recommend a book for my listeners and, and say why? Yeah, how about I will recommend Haley Piper's um, Benny Rose, The Cannibal King. It's a, I think it's probably a novella. Maybe it's a novel. It's a standalone book either way. It's a slasher, and it's a really innovative slasher. It's, as we've been talking about, it's hard to find new territory, you know, for the slasher to to trample on but i think Haley piper does it and it's completely exciting and she's just a really good writer besides so that's what i recommend Vinnie rose the cannibal king excellent she is a writer i'm desperate to get on i've been speaking to her on twitter basically i've i've over programmed the calendar so i'm trying to desperately find a <laughs> slot where i can get her in for queen of teeth because it's all happening and yeah yeah am i yeah. um my early my early days naivety and worry meant that I planned too far ahead. So yeah, watch this space. If you listen, <laughs> Haley, I know you do listen. Um, I'm doing my best. Uh, before we move on, I should say, when I ask that question every time, I've asked that question I think fifty two times now to to authors. Um, the only good Indians is Head and Shoulders, the winning nominee. It's been recommended more than anything else. Oh, wow. Including by Joe Lansdale, who, as I said, just waxed lyrical about it for quite a while. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, Joe's great. Joe's one of my all-time heroes. Um, I first met him back in 02, I guess. At a, We were on a Conan the Barbarian panel down in Austin, Texas. And in the Q&A period after the panel, 
someone raised their hand and they said, Hey Joe, um, what genre do you write in? Cause you know, he's all across the board. He does yeah. whatever he wants to. And, um, and Joe snapped right back without even pausing. He said, I write the Joe R. Lansdale genre <laughs> next, you know? <laughs> and, and I knew right then that was, that was the early part of my career. I'd done like one book, maybe two books. Um, I just sat back and I thought that's where I want to be someday. I want to, yeah. I want to be like Joe. I want to be like Joe Lansdale. You know? we, we could all do with being a bit more like Joe Lansdale. I think, I think the yeah. world would potentially be a better place. Yeah. To finish up, Stephen, the question I always end on, what truly scares you? You know, possession stories truly scare me. Um, and I mean, the I guess the easy answer for why is that um, it's, it's, it's possession narratives are really a, like a colonial story is pushed through a single person, you know, it's a outside body coming in to inhabit. And, but that to me is just, it's just so terrifying. Um, sleepwalk. I mean, one of my friends when I was in sixth grade, his little brother sleepwalked and that just terrified that, that like stultified me. Maybe want to move to another state, you know, I can't handle people. I can't handle sleepwalking. Um, this idea that someone can be a puppet on strings that we can't see is um, so, so scary to me. I've yet to write a possession story. I've got one in mind. I'm not sure I have the nerve to get it down on paper. Though. That is so interesting to me because if someone asked me the question, I would give exactly the same answer. Oh, I, wow. I am a completely unspiritual person. I have no faith, yeah. no belief in anything in the numinous, none of it. I believe uh-huh. Uh-huh. maybe ghosts are a thing that we haven't yet kind of reconciled with science and it's something I don't uh-huh. know. I don't believe there is kind of any existential otherness, but I can't read or watch anything to do with possession. It terrifies me. Yeah. That... And, and the, the colonial thing is, is a way more profound kind of rationale than mine. My, my worry is that, that one day I will become crazy enough to believe I'm possessed. And then, and then at that point, what's the difference? You know what I mean? What is the difference? Oh, for sure. Yeah, for sure. And like, like, like Paul Tremblay's Head Full of Ghosts, Grady Hendrix, um, My Best Friend's Exorcism. Those are like just mind-numbingly terrifying to me. And I've yet to watch The Taking of Deborah Logan because people tell me it's honestly scary. <laughs> like The Exorcism of Emily Rose shook me enough. Well, know? that, Emily Rose, is is the reason I can't read them anymore because I I, really, I, I watched it twice. <laughs> I watched it the first time. I was fine, even though I... Um, my my then girlfriend woke me up in the night doing like the contortions that yeah, yeah, freaked me out. Uh, we, we didn't last. Yeah, I heard you. I heard you say that on another episode. That was just yeah. that's a that's a deal breaker, man. <laughs> yeah. anyway, I, I watched it again. I had a panic. I had a, had a literal panic attack watching it with my mum. And um, yeah, never again. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, well, I'm glad we're on this. We're simpatico with that one because if um, <laughs> if you, the person who goes out into the woods and doesn't shoot bears, is scared by this stuff, then I feel <laughs> a little bit more vindicated. We'll leave it there because I think we've we've covered the map on this conversation i i feel like more than normal that we've i've kind of not discussed the book as much as i normally would because we've had too much interesting stuff to kind of riff on um just to bring that it back home onto my heart as a chainsaw as i say this book is a unique thing in the horror landscape this year there's nothing else like it that's a true it's a cliche that gets said gets said a lot but there is nothing else like this book even grady hendrix's final girl support group which sounds nominally similar completely different beast and everyone should read this book if they want to know what's happening in horror 
yeah, it's brilliant. But all that's left to say, Stephen Graham Jones, is thank you for talking scared. Man, this has been an honor. I could have done it for three more hours, probably. We don't shoot bears. That's the thing we don't do. If anything really emphasises the difference between my existence and Stephen's, it's that sentence. I have never shot a bear, Stephen, nor would I expect to. I'd run. I'd hide. I wouldn't be anywhere near bears in the first place. But that's the thing with him, man. I mean, he's just different. He's old school. I mean, I meant what I said. He and Joe Lansdale are like the father and son of outlaw fiction. Forget genre divisions. Forget labels. Stephen's work is dark and grimy, and in places it's shimmering with this strange, tarnished beauty. But it's entirely his own. I could read everything he ever writes, and I doubt we'd ever get bored, or, or even know what to expect from the next book. My Heart is a Chainsaw is a special book. Like I said repeatedly, it starts as one thing and it becomes another. It frustrated me, it bewildered me, it pissed me off at times, because... You know, there were times I was thinking, yeah, I get it, Stephen, you know your horror movies, but but he's doing something, and good God does it transmute into something else entirely. Those last hundred pages, they unfurl like wings and just take off. So very few horror books actually stick the ending. I mean, how often have we heard that as a major criticism of the genre? Well, this one does. It starts gliding home with 100 pages to go, and then it touches down with the most perfect closing chapter. I mean, I'm mixing my metaphors all over the place with this, but basically read this book. This summer is stuffed with spins on the slasher, but if you're only going to read one, make it this one. Sorry, Grady. It helps that Stephen is so incredibly humble. You might have missed it in the muffle, but at one point he mentions how his novella, Mapping the Interior, won, quote, awards and junk. That doesn't come across like faux man-of-the-people bullshit. I think he really does just do this for the story and let the rest go to hell. And as he says, and as I agree, the story has to matter. My Heart is a Chainsaw really will matter to a lot of people for reasons that I can't tell you about. But go find out. What I can tell you about is that I'm astonished that we're a year into this show. Where the flying frig did that time go i know pandemic time has gone rubbery and elastic and gloopy but come on i'm a year older my dog is a year older and this show has gone from something that 40 people listen to in the first few weeks to getting thousands of downloads every month it's mad and i'm thrilled just as i was utterly thrilled by those first 40 listeners who heard me nervously blather on to paul tremblay and john langan I'd like to say thanks to each and every guest, publisher and person involved in making this happen, but mostly I'd like to thank you guys who listen and genuinely seem to enthuse about what I'm trying to do here. I've made actual friends through this show and I just hope the trajectory continues upward and our community continues to grow. Enough of the saccharin though, I mean this is a horror show after all. One of you must now die to salt that sweetness a little. Maybe we can pick someone at random like Shirley Jackson's The Lottery. Patreons are safe. Consider that one of the many perks. Oh yeah, and actually, I missed out some Patreon shoutouts last week. My apologies. We've got quite a few new members, so a big hi to Emma H, 
Sarah Fitzsimmons, Melanie Trumbo, Spacey Stacy, Lisa Goldman, who is head of the Norwegian contingent, Michelle Best and Rachel Harrison. That's a lot of new people and you are all welcome. Please take off your shoes, get a drink and let's meet by the sacrificial altar. I do know that I've fallen a bit behind with the Patreon Whisper episodes. They're the ones with the extra content from the interviews. I'm going to be dropping not one, but two of those very soon. And a particular highlight is Zoya Stage's answer to the question of what was the scariest thing that ever happened to her. Listen out for that. It's quite literally a squeal. <laughs> if you want to become a patron for all that extra goodishness, as well as membership of the official Talking Scared book club via Novelic the book app, then you can find the link in the show notes or go direct to patreon.com slash talkingscaredpod. Otherwise, as ever, you can find me on the socials. It's been a year now, so this is mostly for the new listeners. The rest of you should know already. But it's Talk Scared Pod on Twitter, where we're making that hellhole better one chat at a time. Or Instagram is talking underscore scared underscore pod. Even better, drop me an email at talkingscaredpod at gmail.com. And, and, if you must get me a birthday present, and if you don't, I'll sulk. The best gift you could give me is a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. They still make all the difference in getting the show promoted to more people, so those poor fools who don't yet know can find the show. Other than that, seriously guys, thanks for the most creatively satisfying year of my life. It's been a blast. And the only way is up, starting next week with Daniel Krauss and The Living Dead, a book he co-wrote with none other than George Romero. But till then... Watch for Jason's machete, hide from Michael's knife, wake up from Freddy Krueger, and be more Laurie Strode. Read good books, and remember, it's good to be scared. <laughs>